there is uh, there is something to say about um, the scientific community in the sense that we all need to stand together. We cannot let uh, those of us who do the actual climate science uh, just defend themselves. But uh, I think we should show solidarity as a as the larger community of scientists to all those, like my colleague Andrew Dessler, who do receive mm-hmm. uh, actual death threats. This is Greg Harmon at Deceleration, deceleration.news, and I'm reporting this week on the March for Science in its local and international dimensions. You just heard Dr. Gunnar Schada, an atmospheric scientist at Texas A&M University and keynote speaker at tomorrow's March for Science San Antonio. He's speaking about the abusive and threatening behavior of some climate change denialists who are encouraged in their messaging by, by some in power who claim uh, calls for urgent climate response uh, to rising temperatures are just one big hoax. Shada is one of two guests this week on the subject of the National March for Science, both as a phenomenon and in its local expression here in San Antonio, where the mar- year's march, a little earlier than what's going on uh, elsewhere, uh, is, is our third. And, it, and here it's dedicated to the passage, um, or hoped-for passage, of a climate action plan for the city. Though nonpartisan, the March for Science spun out of a particular political moment of resistance. Donald Trump had just been elected. His inaugural day crowds were embarrassingly low, but he can boast that he was greeted days later by the largest day of protest in U.S. history. The Women's March on Washington has involved as many as 4.6 million people around the country. So on Earth Day, uh, a couple months later, uh, there came what has been called another unprecedented eruption, and this time from the scientific community, a, a protest for science. To get the local picture on that, I spoke with longtime friend Peter Bella. Bella is known here in San Antonio as the former Natural Resources Director at the Alamo Area Council of Governments. He's a fellow steering member uh, of the San Antonio Climate Action and Adaptation Plan, member of the Coalition Climate Action SA, which uh, includes dozens of community uh, groups here, pressing for, among other things, the closing of our last remaining coal plant by 2025. Uh, And he's also this year's March organizer. Opening the lens a bit into the world of climate science is Dr. Gunnar Schada, who joins us in the second half of this podcast. First, here's Bella. I think that one of the reactions to this most recent administration um, in many, 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 many ways has been the willingness to get in the streets here Mm -hmm. in San Antonio, because that's not something that I know traditionally as a native of San Antonio. But during that first event, I believe that the quickness with which that event was organized gave, gave very much gave root to uh, a willingness to get together. There were 1,700 people, is what the Express News estimated. 1,700 people for that 2017 march held at San Antonio, or rather San Pedro Park Springs and the SAC campus there. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge. That was a huge event. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I'm and I'm guessing you're you describing your background, right, um, in environmental health and service and natural resource um, research, uh, ozone. Um, that that there was a an easy tie-in, right? I mean, this was uh, <clears throat> the first March for Science. That was Earth Day. It was a partnership with the Earth Day Foundation. I don't know if that's could, could still the case. Um, but how much of your own like history and and concerns? Um, kind of led you this direction? I mean, that was a 
climate environmental science literacy, I think, was what the first march was, kind of the theme was. Yes, very much. The I think air quality has always been, in a lot of camps, very popular as a theme, but that doesn't mean it's well understood. There's a lot of difference between ozone and carbon as elements for air pollution. Yeah. But uh, it was it was very much and has been for the past 30 years very much a critical awareness concept to educate people on what carbon is and what it means. And I'll admit that I was not particularly carbon literate for a long time. I was focused on ozone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that I was one of a number of people who became more and more woke to the mm-hmm. concept of the dangers of climate change. That's uh, that's a really important point. I'm glad you, you bring that in because I was reviewing the original vote. So 2017, um, we we had a mayoral runoff election, right? And we got uh, Ron Nirenberg uh, came into office. This was in, in, in so literally weeks after Trump announces on June 1, we're, we're getting, he was going to try to get the U.S. out of the Paris uh, Agreement, which actually takes several years and, and it's a little complicated. But, um, you know, we have this reaction and, and we get a, a commitment to the principles of Paris and, and, and we get this pathway to a climate plan locally. And yet when I was reviewing the video uh, of the council conversation, that's one thing that became really clear to me is that 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 there was not most of those members or many of the members did not discern the difference between the historical conversation about air quality in San Antonio, which is you better watch out. The federal government's going to, you know, tax your right. gas or withhold <laughs> development funds or something if you've got a lot of soot in the air or, oh, you know, or asthma, you know, right, right, right. Or ozone, you know, and, and, and we're voting on a climate plan. Um, and so that was really interesting. And I think and, and one of my kind of like lingering suspicions is that 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 limit on climate awareness or literacy has kept this plan from moving forward as it should have. And so uh, anyway, that's a really good distinction. Um, and I don't know if you are seeing yeah, that, hearing not to, that from local officials. Yeah, not, or, to, not to throw stones at the existing city council makeup, but there are I think that there are city council members who don't have that kind of technical background and who aren't. I mean, you know, I appreciate the concept that being a city council person or being a mayor requires an incredible bandwidth, an incredible mental accessibility to a whole host of of difficult issues, Mm -hmm. not the least of which are the common pedestrian issues of traffic and police and safety and all the other garbage pickup. Uh, So when you get to the point where you're talking about these what might be more esoteric ideas like climate, I can... I sympathize with the fact that, in fact, there are people on the council who really are not very familiar at all with what it takes and how to distinguish between the different kinds of air pollution. And that is a critical, that's a critical need because of the, the risks that are foretold by science, the risks that are predicted, mm-hmm. and the, uh, even though they're in the future, the immediacy of the need to act now. All mm-hmm. of that is, is critical thinking that needs to very much to be on the tip of the tongue of every politician and ideally every San Antonian. Yeah, I mean, it really, they're really, I guess, uh, uh, my my only point is, yeah, not not to throw stones, but to just to point out that really the a lack of literacy, which you know, March for Science is about bringing awareness the the importance um, of of this a certain level, right, of uh, of awareness, uh, informedness, uh, and valuing of 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 the scientific method and research in the community. Um, there's consequences, right, when we don't have that, and I think I think part of what we're seeing right now is 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 an example of that. But um, before we get into the cap itself proper, this is this is uh, I, I get the sense that or, or that in the past, March for Science is not 
gone deep into local politics, and this may be the first year that a, a, a major local policy issue was was the agenda. Is that accurate? And if so, that's accurate. How did, yeah. How did y'all reach that decision? Well, the so from several points. Frankly, uh, again, the first year we had what we colloquially describe as the Trump bump mm-hmm. that got us 1,700 people out in the streets. And the second year we made our focus simply the idea that science was uh, evident in San Antonio's history. So we held our second march at Jefferson High School, which is home to several Nobel Prize winners in science. Mm-hmm. They went to school there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was our focus. And we had about 400 people show up, and we, were, we thought in terms of how remote that location is, how unseen we were in our march, even though the theme was good. So mm-hmm. the third year around, we wanted, to, uh, we wanted to continue the process, and it became pretty evident that uh, both as a, an issue that needed addressing climate science, climate change, as an issue that, that was very real and immediate in local politics and planning processes, that it was it was kind of a sort of a no-brainer to take on the concept of, as you were saying, climate awareness, climate education. This is this is one of the goals of climate science in broadest terms. Is uh, like you're saying, climate education, or rather scientific education, scientific awareness, scientific literacy, advocacy, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to the planning process in political uh, systems. So it became once we sort of thought both in terms of how. We wanted to increase our own effectiveness and people's awareness of the issue of science advocacy. It became clear that this was really a cause that needed to be championed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I, I'm really appreciative. I know a lot of people probably are as well uh, that you've taken that initiative, uh, particularly since we've had this delay. This was originally going to be an April vote. Some of us have been working on this for over a year, uh, you and, and, and myself and, and many others, <clears throat> many others. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, it's a really critical moment, uh, to continue to advance this, um, this priority in this, in this cause. Yes. Um, yes. Now I, I think I mentioned earlier and, uh, I served with you on the climate action adaptation plan steering committee and, yes. uh, knew you prior, you know, prior, uh, and, and found you through this process. Well, let's just say, um, willing to ask repeatedly of the city of Nagan, of CPS Energy, um, uh-huh. to advocate for data, right? Uh, and and you right. were one of those members that that was always after uh, just just give me give me the data, give me the data sets. You guys are building your assumptions off of. I want you know that a right. certain level of access that I think we probably never got. So, um, how would you describe generally? your experience serving the, with the Climate Action Plan and the product as it's been delivered, as it appears today, I guess, as it goes through future revisions, we'll see what comes, but what we got. Um, that's a tall order because I'm trying to sort through the differences. With the ozone planning process that was at ACOG, we had what was, in fact, a full emissions inventory. We had a location for every quote-unquote polluting source, Mm -hmm. including the speciation of emission, the cycle, the rate of emission, everything. We had it even uh, down to population surrogates for data that we didn't know, such as painting the houses Mm -hmm. with VOC, with with paint that when the paint tried it gave off fumes, it helped to make ozone. Mm -hmm. In this process, there are no standing emissions inventories the same way. Right. 
it's very much up to those operating the emissions inventory protocol and gathering the data to begin with a, a series of assumptions. And as you say, we haven't had those assumptions made clear to us. We don't know in any, in any great depth at all what those assumptions are and what that means as far as what numbers they put in what sort of process. Mm-hmm. Now, I have, I have just almost parenthetically, I have offered and I would hope that uh, in conversation with Geekdom, I have talked, I'm, I'm a co-working space person at Geekdom. I'm not on staff or anything like that. But we had a presentation by Doug Melnick in the city of San Antonio on the plan, thanks to Jason Pittman, who is also with Geekdom in the same co-working. Well, he, he actually has a solar company that works in out of Geekdom. Energy Technical Working Group of the CAP, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he was on Buildings and Energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that conversation, it became clear that there were a lot of people in the audience at Geekdom during their presentation that had very deep technical questions. I offered to have Navigant come in, make presentations on the depth of information, and talk to this crowd. Again, I think part of the hesitancy might be that there is, it is very technical, it is very geek-like, and that might provide some hurdle as far as not knowing that we would understand what the heck was going on, which I think is ill-founded if that's true. But the bottom line is I'm trying to turn over every stone I know as well to open the doors for the clear understanding of what the bases are, what the assumptions are, and how the process really works. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there is that ability right now in the contract that CPS Energy and Navigant have. I don't know if there is still money in the bank, as it were. I don't know if we'll see Navigant again. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would very much look forward to remediating what I also see as I don't see it so much as a, like a lack of transparency or a lack of partnership as it's not as important to them as it is to us, as I, I really think is what it boils down to. I should say uh, Navigant Consulting. So the original – so this uh, this plan was developed, uh, I believe, uh, I'd have – you know – there was originally yeah. half a million dollars dedicated to the creation of the plan and, and research and public outreach from CPS Energy um, to T- UTSA. Uh, UTSA was kind of cut loose as a partner as, as, as the source of independent data generation analysis um, in favor, uh, it appears, uh, through the process of Navigant Consulting, which has done previous work, I think, for CPS and has since done work for the San Antonio River Authority. Um, Correct. And... and, and so it's it's hard to say like you're asking about you know the data I mean even the money is is maybe complicated but uh, yes yeah your point is noted I, I just to to kind of s- step over this this body in the street there is a data set out there with your name on it and you want it yeah it's a data set with uh, our city's name on yes. it a data set of what their assumptions are and how the thing works and how the model runs yeah and it is my my main criticism and again this gets I'm sorry, but I'll have to go geek you just for a second. The concept of, well, not knowing what the assumptions are that lead you to certain predictions and calls for certain strategy implementation, mm-hmm. that's, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how to do that with, mm-hmm. a, with, with an analysis that includes the kind of data we're looking for. And, and I'm fine with widely varying assumptions. I'm fine with large error bars that say, well, I might be right, right. and I might be wrong, but right. let's talk about Imagine it, let's define it, let's understand it, and move. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and, you know, and I come in, I've got, I've got you know, my critiques and, and other organizations have theirs, you know, obviously well, deceleration plus the, you know, the <coughs> yes. state and the local Sierra Club that I'm affiliated with uh, are all members of Climate Action SA Coalition. And, and I know you've been deeply involved with that, which is, you know, dozens of groups that have made their priority uh, advocating for, for a climate plan for San Antonio and one that's based on equity uh, values and principles. Yeah. And, and you know we're close. Uh, there's there's a there's a gaping uh, there's a, an opportunity we're missing in in my opinion and and I think that fair to say Casas generally that we've we have been advocating for uh, definitive interim uh, targets. You know where we okay great we're right. going to zero by 2050. Can we move a little faster? Let's make sure to get our coal plant done by 2025. You know net zero in the energy electricity generation sector by 2030. You know there's this and Correct. again it somewhat gets a little wonky as you go down the list of, of, of demands, but it is to say, I guess my point is just that supporting, as myself, supporting a plan, supporting climate action, recognizing deficiencies, <laughs> continuing to advocate for those. Um, now I'm watching, uh, as I know you are, uh, the conversation, you know, the draft plan comes out, you know, we have to contest with what's there, what's not there, and, and the process as, as we participate in it, um, uh, uh, pros and cons. Um, but now we're faced with kind of like this huge blowback in the business community by the SA Chamber of Commerce, by the Manufacturers Association, Valero Energy, oil and gas interests, obviously, um, who apparently had no idea that they were, you know, uh, expected to fade into the the, the, the twilight, um, which, you know, this is a process happening all over the world. So um, somehow this was a shock. Right. But right. – um, so now we, we know that so Doug Melnick, the chief sustainability officer, and the mayor's office, we've had these communications that go out. Well, we have this um, to be to be you know uh, still to be done kind of this this short list that Doug put out saying oh we're gonna uh, uh, look at the business case for action so they want to like make that more stark um, and there's a bullet on there clarify the intent of the equity framework uh, and and just. Odds and ends that that comes directly out of kind of like this the, the outcry right from from those who are sh- certain that short term gain and profit will be jeopardized by a plan that right. will certainly create a, the ability of of any of these um, um, agencies and businesses to function right. in the decades time. But can you imagine? I guess a climate action plan. You know, let's say we get you know another month, two month, three months, and, and finally into the fall where we get a vote. A plan. What would it look like that you would walk away from? Um, tough question because, from for in my mind, I would. I would. I guess I'd really just have to see what it would look like. I I can't now imagine disagreeing <clears throat> with a plan that had. Any that had the proper players at the table—that is, including the oil and gas—and anybody who is anybody who is disagreeing with the plan, and anybody who's agreeing with the plan—if there's a plan that is comprehensive of the stakeholders in the region and has a pathway forward, even if it's not the speed and depth that I feel technically needs to be shown, I would I would welcome that plan. In other words. Again, I really am very mindful of the quote-unquote Paris-compliant uh, trajectories that Navigant had shown to members of the committees and then to the public. 
that shows how quickly and how deeply the cuts need to be made, and that's something that I will carry forward with me. Which wasn't then, interestingly <laughs> enough, reflected in the plan itself. Right. So, yeah, we had different charts, by the way, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we have different charts that are published as part of the draft plan that's available to the public now for right. review. Right. So I am accepting of of the plan uh, knowing that it is not a quick business, knowing that it is even well, it is clearly generationally an impact, which means that it will be years in implementation as well. I, I accept that, especially the radical nature of the change required to really truly achieve means that in some case there, there's virtually got to be compromise. And I, I, I wrestle with that, but I, I also know that um, we'll have to see how hard we can push and how far we can go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't resist. I, I mean, just because we're in such a state sure. of flux. Um, I'm just, just going to one of those <laughs> questions on my lips for everybody right now. And um, So Good moving question. in, we're you know just over 20 minutes, and I, coming up, we, we, we are you know, less than a, a, a week away from, from the march. What's, sell it. I mean, what, what, when you, you meet somebody on the street, you're over, you know, bagging up at HEB or, you know, uh, or, or what have right. you. And someone says, March for science. What's that? You know, uh, you know, do you want to just invite folks out, let them know what it is in your own way? Yeah. So very much. So March for science again is a science advocacy, science education group that supports through a lot of different ways. Uh, be it, uh, the ability of universities to get research monies so they can uh, carry grants that does research or the ability for us to teach in public schools what re- what climate ch- what the what vast reach of sciences. I almost said climate change. Um, so we have a very broad advocacy when it comes to science that does include policy development, facts-based, evidence-based uh, policy development. So in the great, great scope of things, that's what March for Science itself does. And so the march this year will be one that advocates in terms of that same evidence-based planning process for the climate plan that is before the city. And again, in my view, the climate plan before the city is eminently worth supporting and eminently worth uh, making sure it's as strong as it can be. That's the point of this coming Saturday's March for Science. Mm -hmm, mm Gunnar Schade got on the radar for many for his research into the public health impacts of fracking, but he's also made headlines uh, earlier this year when he joined dozens of climate scientists and those in related fields to challenge Texas Governor Greg Abbott on his deflecting of a journalist's question about the impact of global warming on 2017's Hurricane Harvey, which caused, uh, you may recall, extensive damage in the Houston area and beyond. Climate scientist Michael Mann and and others have suggested global warming made that storm more destructive uh, via its artificially warming of Gulf waters and increased moisture in the atmosphere as well as likely storm surge. Somewhere into the second half of our conversation, Gunnar and I have a disagreement that may on its own make for an interesting subject in a future podcast – he stops me when I suggest that global warming requires a total remaking uh, of the global economy and in short order. Uh, he suggests that I have adopted what he calls our myths about global warming that in turn alienate conservative Americans and thereby make climate action more difficult. 
So my statement is premised on a range of sources, including not least among them the most recent report from leading contributors to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which states that preventing the worst manifestations of global warming means, quote, rapid and far-reaching transitions in energy, land, urban, and infrastructure, including transport and buildings, and industrial systems, end quote. These are, it says, quote, systems transitions that are unprecedented in terms of scale. So there's a lot to read into there, and the report unpacks those models as likely in critically uh, avoiding a full 1.5 degrees of warming, which includes changes in, in high resource use consumption patterns. So there are future conversations to be had as to whether those in the United States, now one of a few nations pulling away from the Paris Accord, will insist on maintaining their high resource consumption lifestyles at all costs, or if there may be room for everyone else. Another installment, perhaps. But this week, we are fortunate to have Shada here sharing his insights on climate, Texas, the nature of denialism, and here, my first question, what difference a city climate plan can make? Here's Shada. Um, any, any of such plans are important for the simple reason that the climate responds to the accumulative amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So any reduction we can uh, put in place is going to help. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's a very straightforward uh, thinking on it. So even if you, you know, uh, cannot do a lot, anything you do is going to help. Uh, that said, uh, somebody has to make a start, and since uh, we are uh, lacking on the international front, um, mm -hmm. we are not lacking, we're not lacking behind anywhere on the uh, activities on uh, the small scale. Counties and cities like San Antonio can make a huge difference, and that's because cities are big sources of greenhouse gases. It's where uh, a lot of people live and where a lot of these greenhouse gases are generated. So uh, if we can make a big difference um, on that front, that helps uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, whoever starts it uh, and gets uh, in gear with these kind of activities will have a leg up in, uh, in the future. And since most people live in cities and since more and more people live in cities, uh, these will set very good examples that can be transferred to other cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I think San Antonio, it, like like Austin, uh, is, is, is pretty unique in that we, we own our utility. and. Uh, we recently shut down one of our coal plants that was averaging, mm -hmm. over the last 10 years, over 5 million metric tons of, of greenhouse gas uh, CO2 equivalent, you know, a year. And we've got one remaining that we're working, those of us in the kind of the advocacy community, to, to uh, shut down by 2025 that's been averaging uh, over 7 million metric tons. So, yeah, in, on the in the city-to-city city city landscape, um, there's a lot we can do. I, I definitely, I, I agree. And um, now, I, I really, I really respect and, and appreciate you. I have to say, as as a as a scientist who's been out there, really actively advancing and defending uh, uh, climate science, going so far as recently uh, signing on and perhaps helping to author this this group letter uh, to Go Governor Greg Abbott in I think it was January. Um, 
you know, he, he was backing off or trying to worm out of a, of a question about, you know, how uh, global warming had contributed to Hurricane Harvey uh, using that really well-worn uh, uh, deflection, you know, among so many politicians that, hey, I'm not a climate scientist, right? Um, well, here's a group of climate scientists and, 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 and experts in, you know, atmosphere, you know, yourself, atmospheric studies and uh, writing that, uh, well, offering your services, right? Uh, and, and writing at the time that, that climate change has been having a devastating impact, I think those are the words, uh, on Texas. What what would you say? I mean, you've got, you know, you've got a, a minute to describe, you know, the, the interplay of, of warming temperatures uh, and, and, and Texas. What's going on? What are you observing? Well, what we uh, see throughout the climate system is that the extremes are becoming more and more common. And uh, the average person is not experiencing the, the globe's average temperature, which is, you know, the, the hallmark of of climate science in terms of uh, the graphic that you see reproduced over and over again. Mm-hmm. But what what we actually experience on the ground is often the extremes. We can live with a, with a summer that's a little bit hotter here and there, but once we get extremes like 2011, mm-hmm. uh, the drought of 2011, we get a feeling of what it's going to look like in the future. So the forecast is that uh, the average summer temperature in the year around mid-century is going to be like we had in the summer of 2011. And that's going to be the average summer, not the hottest summer. So you can imagine where this is going to go. We had billions and billions of losses to the state in 2011. Uh, And if that's the average summer, then how many billions is it going to cost us when we get a hot summer mid-century? Mm-hmm. So that's the temperature side. Uh, then you look at uh, extreme rain events such as Harvey and other um, large rain events that have caused floods. These are uh, events that once they keep coming back every five or so years, which in some places they might, Mm-hmm. Uh, you will see, uh, at some point, you will see that we are not going to reconstruct. People will leave the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will get migrations because uh, people cannot afford uh, rebuilding uh, because they cannot see uh, a future for themselves anymore in these areas. So unless we start uh, reconstructing with future climate in mind, um, we're going to just uh, put ourselves back into harm's way, and we're going to get flooded again and again and again. So the big problem is not necessarily dealing with one extreme event. Mm-hmm. The big problem is that that event is going to come back at a higher and higher frequency, which eventually will overwhelm any ability to bounce back, and that is the part that we may still have uh, time to avoid uh, in the sense that we have to get into gear with mitigating uh, greenhouse gas emissions such that we're not going to enter that worst-case scenario, which we're well on track of um, hitting for by the end of the century. Mm-hmm. Now. You know, we're we're kind of at a at a at a place at a moment in you know national politics and the national conversation where there's a lot of you know it's not just kind of anti elitism but but anti um, 
uh, science, really. I mean, that's where March for Science kind of er erupted from. Science is no longer uh, or informing policy in a way that it used to be kind of agreed upon language. And and I think folks, there's even a sense for, with with a lot of folks, uh, unfortunately, that, hey, you know, they, they could listen to you go through that entire litany of, you know, where we are, where we're headed, and say, hey, everybody's got an opinion. You know, <laughs> mine may be good, just as good as yours, but, but, but there's something called the scientific method. And I think people don't, aren't always aware of how we know what we know and, and the process by which we accumulate this information. So if I could dial you way, way down... Could you describe that briefly where, I mean, Dr. Dessler was here and he said, look, we've been studying climate change, global warming, what have you for literally, I mean, nearly 200 years. I mean, we've been looking at, you know, how the greenhouse gases, you know, uh, influence temperature globally. And can you kind of just walk through very, very basics on the accumulation of this information, what the scientific method is? Uh not in really a few words, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, any process in science uh, starts little with somebody discovering something that looks interesting, mm -hmm. and we build it up from there. Mm -hmm. um, there's the famous saying that if I uh, have achieved anything, it's because I've stood on the shoulder of giants, right? Uh, which basically means that uh, there has been a beginning, but we don't know exactly where it came from, but there's lots of people who have contributed me achieving something uh, in science, and you can apply that to, vir to virtually any field of science. Mm -hmm. um, the fact is that climate science is much, much older than uh, most people know. Uh, it goes back to the beginning of the 19th century mm -hmm. and uh, had advanced enough uh, by the beginning of the 20th century that the basics were known, namely that there are greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and, and if we raise their concentration, it's going to get warmer. Uh, the researcher who quantified that was Swante Arrhenius, uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, not for this research, but he, since he was uh, Swedish, he, um, to him, this was actually some good news, but he expected this not to happen <laughs> until hundreds of years into the future. What he did not foresee, but which uh, became clear only half a century later, was that uh, humanity was developing so rapidly and so rapidly increasing its consumption of fossil fuels that it was clear to scientists in the 1960s that this we were on the path to a significant warming by the end of the century, uh, which meant by the year 2000. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the first uh, warnings that these effects were coming were sent to uh, the president in the 1960s. Yeah. So we essentially have presidential statements on climate uh, change since the 1960s. Every president had to say something about this, but nothing ever changed. And that's still the situation to this day. Uh, that has nothing to do with the scientific process. That is uh, completely due to the political process. And a few quirks uh, where the United States 
the United States stands out against other nations, such as the media landscape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember uh, stumbling across, I think it was a uh, an early paper, I guess it was a contractor written maybe at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or, or, or somewhere like that, and, and essentially painting this picture of, of a future uh, with the assumption that policy response would be giant walls all around, all around the United States, and that seems to be the moment that we're in today, uh, though without a, a, a sober conversation about some of these forces that are driving migration. Um, but what about backlash? I mean, there, there's there's researchers I've, I've spoken to in the past who, who I know have received death threats. You know, climate climate uh, this conversation has become so politicized by, by some parties that it's, it's, it's a hazardous landscape. And I'm just wondering how you have uh, personally decided um, to to be very frank and to be very open and outspoken on the subject? Well, since I do not directly publish in climate science, I uh, do not fall under the category of scientists that have to be brought down mm-hmm. uh, by the people who... Uh, think they have uh, a large say in this field, um, but all they have is a big mouth. Yeah. So, uh, so they're very outspoken, um, and in some cases they have the backing of uh, large think tanks, which uh, gives them entry into large newspapers where they can publish op-eds that are re- perceived by other people as... Uh, uh, factual uh, science and not the pseudoscience which they represent. While I have not received any personal um, threats uh, other than from weirdos, mm-hmm. uh, well, yeah. there is uh, there is something to say about um, the scientific community in the sense that we all need to stand together. We cannot let uh, those of us who do the actual climate science uh, just defend themselves, but uh, I think we should show solidarity as a, as the larger community of scientists to all those, like my colleague Andrew Dessler, who do receive mm-hmm. uh, actual death threats and have their email conversations um, pulled, mm-hmm. uh, misused, and mined for quotes uh, of things uh, that you can pull out of context in order to um, smear these mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I asked him a very There similar... has been plenty of character assassinations right. in, the, in right. the field of climate science. Oh, for so. sure. Yeah, I, years ago, I talked to Michael Mann, and, and he's got stories, and Catherine Hayo has stories, and, um, you know, Professor Dessler, his, his response to this question was... You know, you know. Hey, I don't want anybody to ever say I didn't warn them. You know, he's he's his conscious, his conscience. You know, speaks to him, pricks pricks him on this point. And um, but but it's also important to understand. So a march like like we're having, or the origins of a march, while it came out, it was an Earth Day event and was dedicated to you know ex- ex- uh, raising awareness and understanding of of, of environmental science broadly. Um, it doesn't take, you know, science doesn't take sides. There's inconvenient, inconvenient truths, uh, large and small. Uh, the largest ones, perhaps, related to this conversation, the subject of this conversation, being that, you know, we've got this momentous challenge to virtually, basically, recreate our entire economy in a very short time to, uh, to, to get off of fossil fuels onto renewable energy and many, many other 
transition. Yeah, I wouldn't call it recreate the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, what you have to recreate is the way we produce, distribute, and use energy. Mm -hmm. That does not mean... Um, so, uh, basically... Uh, even though you have a very strong background in this, what I hear, what I hear you do is you have, uh, like many other people, adopted some myths mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. are actually not true. Mm -hmm. um, this is how some people are, uh, many people, unfortunately, uh, especially on the right, try to uh, drive the conversation into a corner where it doesn't belong. We're not talking about having to change our lives completely. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is change the way we produce, distribute, and use energy. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that uh, we're not going to drive cars anymore in the future. That does not mean we won't have computers anymore in the future. That does not mean uh, we're not going to eat potatoes anymore in the future. Um, most of what we do every day today, we're going to do every day in 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. It's just that we're not going to fuel it anymore by fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess I would, I mean, I'd be interested in what other areas or other myths, you know, you, you hear me uh, advancing, but I, I guess I would dispute that point uh, on simply that, you know, I think a lot of times also we use climate change or global warming as shorthand for many, many colliding uh, ecological crises. You know, one of those is, um, you know, a uh, devastating, you know, extinction crisis, six, you know, uh, mass extinction mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, loss of a huge amounts of, of, you know, the ecological services, habitats and, and what have you, decimation of species and the oceans. And, and these are about consumption. So I think there is a big conversation to be had about the way we live and that we just can't continue to consume and gather wealth uh, in, 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 with clean energy. So I think that's a bigger conversation. I don't think that I'm out on mm. a limb there. Um, but if there's other areas, do you think I am, you know, I'm, I, no, I'm no, you're, direction. you're right in the sense that, um, once we decide to switch our, uh, energy production system away from fossil fuels to, uh, uh, fossil fuel and uh, fossil fuel free energy systems mm -hmm. such mm -hmm. as renewables, we may also realize that our the way we consume may not be sustained by that other energy system. Mm -hmm. That remains to be seen. There's uh, there are a number of processes uh, of production that we use right now that uh, use so much fossil fuels that, you know, we will probably think those over and say, you know, this is probably something that we won't be able to do because it's not sustainable um, once we have switched our energy system. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think changes in consumerism will uh, inevitably follow from our change of the energy system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't make one conditional on the other, but I would hope that uh, we're not going to switch the energy system, but then uh, keep destroying um, uh, ecosystems by other means. Mm -hmm. uh, there are plenty of other reasons why uh, our certain areas are um, affected environmentally and we're losing habitat. Uh, not for reasons of climate change, but for uh, overpopulation or consumption reasons. So you're absolutely right. There are other reasons to be environmentally concerned other than climate change. Mm -hmm. um, but 
some of them can be addressed in the short term while uh, the elephant in the room needs to be addressed as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I see kind of a, a reflection uh, with our, our with our local plan, and and, and it seems I think one of the things people mm-hmm. object to is when they start seeing the, the prescriptions, right? When they, on the one hand, you know, this goal twenty fifty uh, net zero uh, 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 climate pollution. Uh, I mean, that's one thing. But when you have a list of these prescriptions mm-hmm. and they think that's going to be the mandate, uh, then, you know, hey, not this, not that. I don't want to lose this or that and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really, you know, that's what we kind of look for in, 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 in this process, like you're describing science, uh, the mm-hmm. scientific research as it evolves to inform policy, because this is really mm-hmm. completely dependent, you know, uh, you know on, on good research. Uh, and that does change, like you're like you're suggesting. Well, maybe it's not what we think it's going to be on the other side, and and so that's a good point. Um, so this also begs the fact that you know there's some smaller inconvenient truths, and I know you've looked a lot at at uh, you know, uh, or I guess it's more urban forests maybe um, uh, contributing to um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. pollution, you know, mixing with human industry, industrial pollution, or human sources, um, mm-hmm. and. There's a kind of a, a, a startling uh, or a headline that came out. It probably didn't take you by surprise, but this is about methane, and, and I know this is an, also an area of yours. But at the, out of the University of Delaware, where they're saying, you know, hey, there's there there are forests that may be producing more methane than they're absorbing, you know. And I've grown up always thinking more trees, more forests indiscriminately, but it's yeah. it's complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's new uh, research I haven't delved uh, very deep into yet that shows that um, there may be other uh, methane sources that are significant that we haven't dealt yet with. Um, however, um, it, they're not um, globally that important yet. They may, we're still trying to figure out how important they are. But uh, they're certainly not dominant on a global basis at this point in time. Okay. So uh, I think with respect to uh, especially um, uh, the part of the plan that says we need more trees, more greenery in our urban area as a form of adaptation, um, that is, that's a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, most cities will follow that path, and it's because we have very good data that shows that uh, tree planting in urban areas is extremely beneficial uh, for air quality and uh, for uh, temperature, lowering daytime temperatures uh, in urban areas. And uh, this is really something that is going to be a big problem for Texas uh, in the upcoming decades because the summer heat, which is exacerbated in urban areas, needs to be dealt with. And one way to do so, one way to ameliorate that is to plant more trees in urban areas and make sure that they are uh, healthy. Uh, um, The shade and the water that the trees evaporate uh, bring down temperatures very significantly, and that is extremely helpful, uh, both directly and indirectly, through lowering the amount of cooling uh, that... um, uh, we have to do. A single tree in your backyard uh, can lower your cooling costs up by up to 10%. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, uh, due to both its water evaporation and its shading during daytime. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, there's also obviously psychological level well-being and mental health that, that, that folds into um, natural landscapes, trees and, and the rest. But um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the social aspects are yeah, not even yeah. mentioned. Yeah. Um, and I, I promise not to keep you very long. I, I, I just I wanted to comment on your, on your signature file and your email. You've got a quote there from Marie Curie. Um, that uh, was not anymore. Not anymore. Uh, okay, this was an older one. I guess I was looking at an email from from earlier. But um, well, what does it read now? <laughs> uh, it doesn't read anything because we have been ordered not to have these in any of our emails. Oh, Texas A right. and policy. All right. All right. Well, previously, let me give you an opportunity to talk about previously. You had a quote. Nothing uh, from yeah. Curie. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. This is fairly profound. What in that speaks to you in, in, in this moment that we're in? Well, what I see is what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, that once we are planning uh, concrete changes, uh, what motivates people to oppose them is fear. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do so is because they fear for their own future, for their own economic future, uh, for their children. It's because they cannot see the path ahead very clearly. None of us can, but instead of responding with fear, we should respond with, with hope and with looking forward, which is something that the United States has been extremely good at mm-hmm. compared to very many other nations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can speak to that because I grew up in Germany, and a lot of what we do is look backwards yeah. uh, for very good historic reasons, but we are just not uh, historically very good at looking forward uh, with a good dose of hope and um, uh, just the, the peace of mind that it will work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, as a, as a German, I, um, I grew up with uh, a hefty dose of skepticism. Um, but as an American, um, I have to say that you cannot go forward with fear. You have to go forward with the attitude of, we can do this. And the only way we can do is is let's get started and see what works best mm-hmm. and then take it from there. Wonderful. And it, it sounds like maybe something that might be seeding your 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 your, uh, your your offering at the the march is that a message we might be hearing on Saturday? Uh I hope so. Okay. All right. Really well. Well, thank you uh, again for your time and uh, I look forward to seeing you then. All right. All right. See you on Saturday, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Take care. This podcast is a production of Deceleration, uh, findable online at deceleration.news. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher or come into uh, the the main body, deceleration.news, and check us out, subscribe, and we will see you, hear you next time.